welcome to another episode of the Global Health Chat. I'm Tara, the Editor-in-Chief at the AMSA Journal of Global Health. Today I'll be joined by Travis Lines in a discussion around somatization. There is an increasing awareness of the capacity for mental processes to produce or enhance physical symptoms. This notion is commonly referred to as somatization. Cross-culturally, somatization is a normal part of the human illness experience and a common presentation in the Australian healthcare system. Unfortunately, though, the medical education in this area has been negligible for the most of us, and the policy response rather fragmented and ineffective. When it comes to the practice of evidence-based medicine and quality patient care, there is certainly room for improvement. So how does Australian policy reflect these possibilities? And before we proceed, a quick disclaimer that this podcast does not intend to reduce clinical disorders into a mere speculation of the mind. In fact, our aim is quite the contrary. So without further ado, Travis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So you obviously have a bit of a rep in the AMSA policy realm, being our national policy officer and former global health policy superstar. I've had the pleasure of getting to know you a little more these past couple of months, and I'm pleased to say there's a little more to you than policy. So, I mean, we're soon to find out. So, my question to you is, when you're not doing policy, what are you doing? When I'm not doing policy, I'm thinking about policy, I'm dreaming about policy. Uh, When I'm not doing policy, I'm a a medical student, completing (laughs) My final year, uh, like the rest of us. Uh, but I also, in, in those spare moments, I also enjoy uh, getting outdoors a little bit and, and jumping on the bike or uh, jumping into the kayak. Can you elaborate a little bit more on this kayak? So obviously, Victoria went into to lockdown earlier in the year with the rest of Australia. And I decided to reinvent myself as an outdoorsy type and on a whim bought a kayak, an inflatable kayak for a couple of hundred bucks from DCF. I regret to say I've only taken it out once because I did get very wet despite not ending up in the water. I brought most of the water with me on the kayak, but I've, I'm looking forward to the warmer months where I can take it out again. Hoping to see you get on that kayak again and for it to be taken out of that garage. But in the meantime, let's delve straight into it. You've recently written an article for the AMSA Journal of Global Health regarding somatization and a potential policy approach to it. So I'm going to start off by asking you to just give us a bit of a rundown on what somatization really is. Broadly, somatization is the relationship between mental processes and mm-hmm. physical symptoms. So many of your listeners will have heard the word somatization before, and I'm sure the thing that jumps out into their mind is all the really exciting syndromes in somatization, Mm. like conversion disorder or psychogenic non-epileptic pseudo-seizures. Sorry, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. What a flex. uh, Yeah, it's a a big one. Recently recently renamed it, actually, because they thought that psychogenic pseudo-seizure was too stigmatizing. Yeah. And so they thought renaming it to an acronym that comes out as penis and would be less <laughs> so i can't say that ease the tension the intentions are right maybe the uh the result not the best but i digress um realistically though those are very rare manifestations of somatization the kinds of somatization that we'll be more familiar with certainly we'll see more of is really where somatization exists on a spectrum with physical symptoms. The best way I can explain that is to really encourage your listeners to reflect on their own personal experiences. If you've suffered an injury, period, time of month, 
anything of the such and you've got some pain, you might notice that that pain is worse if there is some sort of emotional stimulus that's making you upset. And so the experience of the pain is often a lot worse in that scenario. However, if you're watching something funny on TV, you're talking to a friend, texting your crush, whatever makes you happy, uh, that will often make your pain a lot less severe and you'll experience less pain despite the physical process being constant. And so we really see that a lot play out in clinic where we see um, really this complex relationship between psychological processes, either as enhancers of pain or indeed other symptoms, or indeed just as drivers of those symptoms themselves. And so that's what happens in, of course, conversion disorder and psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. But in many other processes, it's a more complex relationship that takes a little bit more teasing apart. And I can imagine that being quite distressing for whoever may be experiencing that, having physical symptoms that can't be explained organically. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on the potential impacts somatization may have on an individual. So what, you, what you've just described is something called medically unexplained physical symptoms or MUPS, which mm-hmm. is a much better acronym. It sounds very fun. Yeah. Uh, MUPS are physical symptoms that don't have a clear physical origin. And so they're medically unexplained. In many cases, those physical symptoms will actually have an origin. Doctors just haven't found it. In other cases, they might be produced by a psychological process. In all cases, the psychology of having MUPS interacts with the symptoms that you experience. So those symptoms can be pain, they can be shortness of breath, chest pain, paralysis, tingles, whatever you like, paresthesia, I should say. That can be anything along those things, along those kinds of symptoms. The distress that patients feel is really significant if they experience MUPS. Patients don't experience physical symptoms any differently to how they experience psychological symptoms. If a patient has chest pain, they have chest pain. doesn't matter if their heart isn't getting any blood to it and they're having a terrible heart attack or whether that's something that's been produced by a psychological process. The distress, the fear, the pain, the discomfort that is caused by that symptom is exactly the same. So on a patient level, it's really, really, really important because that symptom is a symptom. It's a symptom like any other, irrespective of where it comes from. Indeed, you could argue that patients who experience MUPS actually have a worse run of it with their symptom because they interact with a healthcare system that can be quite hostile to them and very stigmatizing of them. And without that explanation and with this treatment as sort of a bit of a, a bit of a pariah as someone who's a bit of a faker tends to be the, the way that they're treated in the healthcare system. If anything, that experience of the symptom is even worse because they're not even being validated about having that symptom. Yeah, that's a really important point you touched on. Sometimes as medical students, as doctors, we can be very focused on trying to problem solve that we forget the patient that's right in front of us and the experience that they may be having and the quality of life that might be impacted by somatization or by any physical condition they are experiencing. So I guess with somatization, how prevalent is it actually? It's a very good question. I wish it had a good answer, but unfortunately the research in this space is quite poor. Hmm. There have been some who've had a crack at guessing the prevalence at somatization and that guess is very broad. So some have put the number at between about 2 and 50% of all presentations in primary care. The reality is that... It's a big bracket. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. And that I think when you see a number like that, you know that that's the science version of BS. But the reality is it's really difficult to describe what MUPS are. 
it's poorly recorded. It's something that's not really ingrained in the way that we think about health, although some general practitioners uh, do a very good job, of course, of, of approaching that. But in terms of trying to understand the epidemiology of MUPS, we just don't have the data to put a really big number on that. But we can be reasonably confident that it is a common experience that people have. I think perhaps the best way to describe why I think that's the case is to invoke the word heart sink patient. Heart sink is probably a little bit derogatory, mm -hmm. but really what it's describing is a patient with mumps, a patient who comes in with a really complex social history, who has a lot of physical symptoms that can't be explained and where you just don't feel like you can do anything for them and what you're doing just isn't helping them. That's the experience of MUPS. That's an experience that's common to all doctors and all specialties. And I think the ubiquity of that experience is something that really serves to remind us of just how common MUPS is, even in the absence of good epidemiological evidence. And I guess with MUPS, I can't help but wonder with, you know, medically unexplained symptoms, a health condition that has no real pathophysiology that can be put on the table. How do you go about treating that? I am I'm certainly not an expert, so don't take mm. all of your treating advice from me. <laughs> I, will not, I will not stand there in court uh, to, <laughs> to, to defend myself from you in, in that case. But look, there are some really nice guidelines, nice as in good, uh, guidelines that have attempted to bring together the available evidence on MUPS. Mm. And I'm not going to go through every single point of those guidelines uh, for the sake of your listeners and, and trying not to do insomnia during this podcast, of for course, sanity, yeah. <laughs> for, for their sanity indeed. Mm -hmm. But the really important thing to understand about how to treat MUPS is that it needs to be done in the context of a therapeutic relationship that is positive for the patient and one that actually validates their experience. And so it's really important to understand the patient's context to help the patient understand the relationship between mental processes and physical symptoms. And then once that's established, worked from there in actually responding to this issue. And so the ways that you can actually respond to MUPS as an issue in that framework is to actually symptomatically treat the illness. That's particularly something that's drawn from conversion disorder. If someone has a conversion disorder that looks like a stroke, they actually get stroke physio and that seems to work. But other things that can be layered onto that as well are things such as psychological therapies as well have been shown to work uh, in cases of MUPS, particularly in more severe cases of MUPS, as a way of sort of exploring some of the psychological origins that might be contributing to those those illnesses. But I think the really important message for your listeners yeah. without the detail is that it has to occur in the context of a, of a relationship that's really productive of you know, destigmatization and supporting that patient in, you know, on their journey to actually addressing those symptoms. Yeah, for sure. And I'm curious now that you've mentioned that we can systematically address somatization and there is a way to approach it. What does this look like? Can you maybe break that down for us? In terms of what it actually looks like in practice is, I mean, in a word, not in a word, in a few words, not very good. <laughs> um, the reality is that despite this being a really prevalent issue, and again, there are some fuzzy details around the number, the reality is that most patients don't get treated according to that model. In fact, what tends to happen with most patients is they'll be investigated almost obsessively by their doctors and failing that they'll then be sent off to specialist care who will then do even more investigations. And 
it contributes to a very longitudinal relationship with doctors that just aren't productive of actually helping their symptoms. And so, you know, those that over investigation is important for a couple of reasons. It's very distressing to patients. And of course, any investigation can, can involve risks, particularly mm-hmm. if people are having you know, laparotomies or endoscopes for, for gastrointestinal symptoms. But on a healthcare system, on a healthcare system perspective as well, it's also really important in terms of the use of resources. And there's no investigations that don't and aren't ever going to show something are wasted investigations. They engender risk to patients, but they also waste really vital resources. So as much as we've discussed the distress that patients feel, and I think that's really where this discussion should be centered, from a public health perspective, MUPS engenders an enormous amount of waste, and that waste is really, really important. And I guess within our healthcare system in Australia, what has been done in the realm of mental health policy to address the waste of resources with MUPS and somatization? Not much. Uh, not much is, in fact, a very generous way. I think nothing at all has been done around MUPS. It's a sad reality. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very sad reality and a very confusing reality. Mm. Something that I neglected to mention earlier was that there was a British study done in 2004 that estimated the annual cost of a patient with MUPS was about half a million Australian dollars in investigations, hospitalizations. This is a patient with severe MUPS. Yeah. And, you know, we should be angry about the waste, but we should also be angry about what that means in terms of what that patient is going through. It has through to go through, yeah. Yeah. That's lots of hospital visits, lots of surgeries, lots of wasted care that just isn't contributing to making them better. Mm. And so it's those things that really on both sides from a health systems and individual perspective is a real problem. Despite that though, the policy response has been pretty poor. Uh, in the UK and the Netherlands, there are some guidelines published by the sort of peak bodies that look after the health system that give guidance to doctors about how to approach it. Um, I can't say that there's any evidence that discusses the effect of those guidelines, but certainly that they're there is, is positive. But in Australia, no such guidelines exist. Indeed, to just reflect mm. on how on how sort of vacuous the discussion around MUPS has been in Australia, I did a search in preparation of this, in preparation for this article of yeah. Hansard, which is the record of all of Australia's parliamentary proceedings. And the word somatization has only been used in one debate, and that was in the context of a discussion about Lyme disease, in which Gosh. actually the member of parliament who discussed it say that somatization wasn't the problem uh, it's was yeah. used once and been used in a in a perhaps negative way so it is definitely something that has not been prioritized in australia and really needs to be and how mm. do you think that we can go about normalizing somatization and ensuring that like our services actually are better tailored what would be your response the frame that I use to have a look at somatization as a policy issue is the WHO building blocks of health systems. These have been criticized as not providing a particularly accurate view of health systems, but I think in this case they're appropriate to use because the amount of evidence out there and the policy responses in the past have been so so few that something as kind of rudimentary as these building blocks actually provide a, a helpful frame in this case. Basically, they look at different components of the health system. I won't go through each of those, but if you're interested, certainly give it a Google. There's a great WHO paper that describes what they are. But basically what they demonstrated is that Australia and Victoria in particular has a lot of capacity for a policy response to this issue. So it's possible. And then 
on that basis, what that policy response should be is really simply just to have one. I think all good public health interventions really hit the low hanging fruit. Yep. I am very much a low hanging fruit kind of guy, um, future neurosurgeon here. No, not at all. So I think in this case, the really critical thing that we need to do is actually just have a response. That, <laughs> that is really the, I think that you know, it's, such a, it's such a basic answer, but it really is an important answer. The absence yeah. of any kind of framework for somatization is probably the biggest contributor on a health systems perspective to why we don't deal with it very well. So fundamentally, we should have a response. That response should articulate really clear referral pathways for doctors about where somatization is treated and, and where patients who experience MUPS actually go and how they navigate the health system, really with an emphasis on ensuring that they're retained in the primary health system rather than going to specialists. Yeah. I think flowing on from that, that will help to rationalise mental health services for patients who are experiencing more severe MUPS. So that provides more access and more appropriate access to those specialist services for people who need it because primary care is doing the heavy lifting on addressing this as an issue. Then really the other things that follow along from that is to consider a prevention strategy on a public health perspective. I've been very vague about that because of the absence of evidence. Mm -hmm. And so the final part of the policy response needs to be to really use this as an opportunity to develop more evidence and then refine the response according to that evidence. Yeah, definitely. I can see how evidence can guide more tailored approaches to handling somatization. In terms of our workforce, like health workforce, what role do they play in this endeavour? I'm glad that you mentioned that about sort of the role, really highlighting the role of evidence in this. And, you know, the response is a very, it's a very hollow response. And it's hollow because we actually don't know how to deal with this as an issue. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's sometimes a tendency in policy documents to really want to describe everything to the, the nth degree and to be really, really, you know, pick up all the minute details and really describe exactly how something's going to happen. But that would be dishonest and it would generate a response that sees as pigeonhole the kinds of ways that we could respond in response to new evidence. And so really that's that's why it's such a sort of broad-based, let's just have a plan that describes really rudimentary referral pathways within that and then works on developing more knowledge so that that plan can be refined. You've also highlighted really, you know, a really critical stakeholder in this, and that is the health workforce. Mm-hmm. The health workforce is a really good target for this plan because it actually is something where we do have a little bit of evidence We know that somatization and MUPS in particular is best addressed in the context of a therapeutic environment that is open, respectful, and that really sees the patient in their context. And I I hope that to those listening that that really conjures up a GP's office. And so really the the critical role of the health workforce in this is to restructure the, the pathways that these patients take through the workforce. So as I alluded to earlier, often they'll end up in specialist care. Specialists want to do is, and sorry, by specialist care, I mean, so I'm going to change this just so I don't offend any GP wannabes. Um, <laughs> often they, they on, often end up referred to physicians or surgeons. And physicians and surgeons, despite their many talents, really like to hone in on the specific issue that's relevant to their scope of practice. So if you go and see a gastroenterologist, they're going to do every single, you're going to get scoped and they're going to do every single investigation under the sun and perhaps not see the patient's context and see that this might be mumps. And so the fact that a lot of that care is being delivered in that environment means that the care is less good 
than it could be if those patients were retained in primary care. So the purpose of this plan, the primary purpose of this plan is to really, really try and hold patients in primary care and see it dealt with there because GPs actually have the skills to do that. And then the referral pathway should be to psychological or psychiatric services as necessary or indeed to other specialist services as well as necessary. That's really interesting. So I guess what you're saying is just restructuring that referral pathway and also almost increasing that threshold before GPs refer patients on to physicians and surgeons. And I can imagine in doing so, the financial impact of that will be quite positive. Yeah, it would be. Anything that sees care delivered in a GP's office, as opposed to other parts of the healthcare system, is usually a good thing financially. I think the big financial impact of this is that it actually sees patients diverted to the kinds of treatments that they need a lot more, a lot earlier. So that the pathway that patients follow to the to the physician or surgeon's office is often one that involves a lot of stigmatization of those patients. And so as doctors become more and more frustrated that they haven't solved the problem or found an answer, they start to conjure the patient as someone who's a pretender, who's a malingerer, who's just trying to waste their time and who doesn't really have anything wrong with them. When that, you know, that's just, that's stupid. Like mm. that's, you know, the symptom, as I said earlier, is the same. Yeah. It's wrong, irrespective of where it comes from. And so the real advantage of those referral pathways is it will actually see them diverted to MUPS care much earlier than they would have otherwise been. And, you know, the reality of that is that doesn't have to be at the exclusion of other items of care. If someone comes in with gastrointestinal pain, if someone comes in with abdominal pain, Mm. then a diligent GP and indeed a diligent gastroenterologist will investigate that and rule out physical causes. But that can be done in conjunction with MUPS care as well. And you might actually see that the patient improves as those investigations happen, therefore obviating the need for those investigations. Okay. So I'm envisioning this as MUPS being integrated into university curriculums and I guess into the GP specialist pathway and tailored training towards somatization and how to deal with it. How do you see this? I guess I feel like you're more the expert in this field. How do you see this happening in practice? It's a brilliant question and it's one that doesn't have an answer. So I specifically don't talk about education in the article because I couldn't glean anything about how somatization is taught in medical schools or indeed to GPs. So the RACGP does have resources available to GPs about MUPS and about somatization more broadly. Mm. I'm not sure if it constitutes a part of their training. That was very difficult to, to assess. Yeah. Uh, and the degree to which GPs, it's, it's a classic example of what we've had here, to be perfectly honest. There is really just a dearth of evidence. What you've described though around education is probably going to be really important. If GPs are educated and indeed medical students are educated about the existence of MUPS, then they're going to think about it. And thinking about it really is the important step that we need to have happen here. So what I really hope from this is that a plan that actually looks at how to deal with somatization will actually provide something that GPs and other doctors can draw on to sort of give them a little bit of guidance. So rather than speaking to the curricula without really having a good understanding of what they look like, this plan in and of itself almost acts a little bit of education by providing a GP a framework for you have a patient in front of you with MUPS. What now? 
And I think that's also something that'll be relevant to medical students too. For sure, having that structure in place. And you alluded to a plan. You being you, I realise plan would imply a couple of policy points. Do you mind elaborating on that a little bit more? Take us through your policy points. I know you've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> so AMSA calls upon the Australian government to... <laughs> Come on, <laughs> the, yep. Well, I alluded, I alluded to it earlier when I described the plan broadly, and, and it really reflects the fact that this is a this is a policy response that's quite simple. Again, that sort of idea of low hanging fruit comes up again. Mm. The really the core points of this, the core points of a policy response to somatization is that there needs to be a plan, be they you know, be it very dramatically called a plan or or indeed guidelines that elucidate clear referral pathways for doctors. Mm. There needs to be better access to mental health services for patients with somatization across the full spectrum of severities. We should consider and implement a prevention strategy for somatization and dovetailing with that, mm. conduct more research into somatization as a public health issue. And of course, use that research as the basis for improving the plan in the future. It's four points, it's very simple. It's simple in part because it's filling a hole that just has been gaping in our health system for a very long time, but simple in part in recognition of the lack of evidence about what a public health response to somatization looks like. Most of the evidence on somatization has been very clinically focused. Yeah. And so this plan tries to pull some of that up to the public health level, but is very realistic about the lack of good quality evidence on that public health level and really tries to establish the improvement of that evidence based alongside improvements to things that we already know will work. For sure. How would that look if applied to the context of, say, Victoria, Victoria's mental health system? Well, your, listen <clears throat> your listeners might know that Victoria is currently undergoing a royal commission into its mental health system. And so that's due to report in October and regrettably doesn't appear to have had much of a focus on somatization as an issue. However, imagining that it had, and that this plan was part of the discussions, the reality of Victoria's mental health system is that it's about to undergo very significant reforms. The Royal Commission has always been destined as something that really should form the basis of, of wide ranging reforms to Victoria's mental health system in recognition that it's a pretty crappy system. I think everyone's very, very honest and very upfront about that. So yep. this is something that probably straddles the mental health system, but also the primary care system, which are unfortunately actually divided between the two levels of government in that the federal government is in charge of primary care and the Victorian government is in charge of its mental health system. Mm. But really it's about trying to integrate those two systems together and using the I guess the momentum of the Victorian Commission into its mental health system as a means of actually integrating those new care pathways into the mental health system. It also creates a lot of uncertainty as well, I must say. You know, I've written this article in the context of Victoria's current mental health system, but the reality is in five years' time, with everything cross-touching wood, mm. you know, praying for all the gods, <laughs> that Victoria's mental health system will be very different. And so I really, you know, my, my sincerest hope about this article is redundant in five yeah, years' time. Yeah, you'd really hope that we have taken positive leaps forward. Being a medical student, sometimes you just don't feel like you have that ability to contribute to these big picture changes. So I guess if you were to boil this down to 
simple steps a medical student can take. What would that look like? I think that most of the battle is in our attitudes to patients with MUPS. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned the word stigma a few times, and that really is probably their most significant barrier to being treated because they're not put on a pathway that is empathetic, that cares for them as a person. They're put on a pathway that stigmatizes them. So as a medical student, the thing that I always tell myself, and perhaps I need to tell it to myself a little bit more frequently than others, but it's, don't be a dickhead. <laughs> really I love that. I, uh, I'm going to make some badges and hand it out to my surgical colleagues. You know, obviously that's a little bit flippant, but I think that's really most of the battle. It's about recognizing and understanding that a physical symptom is exactly like a psychological symptom. A patient mm -hmm. doesn't experience those symptoms any differently. And our job is to make people's health better. And so if we take that job seriously, then we need to be empathetic and we need to be very, very, very focused on not answering the problem, but on fixing the issue. And fixing the issue in this case means being empathetic. It means treating the whole patient and it means diverting them to services that are actually going to be useful to them rather than stigmatizing them and making them feel crap because they, you know, because of your own deficiencies in being mm -hmm. able to explain symptoms come from i think the rest of it really that's probably 90 percent. 90 percent, don't be a dickhead 10 percent yeah. try to understand where where patients can go and what those treatment frameworks look like so if any medical student googles somatization treatment or mups treatment you'll actually see some really nice articles from the racgp that just describe a really nice sensitive well-structured intelligent approach to mups that's yeah. very 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 easy to implement as well so that would be my, I was going to say almost say unsolicited, but that would be my advice. Perfect. What a way to wrap up the podcast. Don't be a dickhead and educate yourself. Um, <laughs> quotes from Travis Lines. I feel like we should make that the podcast title. That'll probably be a good little <laughs> clickbait. No, 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 that will be my podcast. Thank you very much. I've already copyrighted that, you dickhead. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I can't take that away from you. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us today and, you know, discussing what it looks like to be more sensitive to somatization and how to address that issue in our own backyard. Really appreciate your presence here and definitely will take your tips on board. So thank you so much. No, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs>